All right, let's take a look at Isaiah's difficult times in chapter 8, verses 1 through 22. It'd be great if you had your Bible open there or navigated on your device. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah, as far as a topic, is promised a second son whose name will be a second sign to the future Assyrian invasion. The title of the message, it's all signs and names until somebody invades. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning, um, we always want to hear from you in the text that, we've, uh, that you've chosen for us. Uh, you promised, Lord, that the, uh, the volume, you came in the volume of the book is what you said, meaning that all of scripture points to you in some way. It furthers the story of the love affair of Jesus Christ with his people. And so we want to see ourselves here, but without losing the sense of its original context and the history. These verses really weren't about us. They're not about us, but uh, there are things about your character that are timeless and eternal that every generation of believer can glean. And so be our teacher. Without your presence here teaching us, uh, the words are just brass. But with it, Lord, they're the words of life. And so we invite you to teach us. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. They're calling it Headline Stress Disorder. It is caused by exposure to excessive news coverage. This is real. I'm not making this up. I know it's hard for me to be real with you, but anyway. Symptoms can include stomach aches, headaches, teeth grinding, panic attacks, feeling depressed or sad, feeling overwhelmed, insomnia, lack of energy, anger, and irritability. Further progression may lead to physical and mental diseases, such as anxiety disorders, depression, disorders, endocrine disorders, and hypertension. From pandemics to politics, from inflation to invasions, from climate to crime, from infrastructure to immigration, from guns to gas, from derailed trains to deadly disease strains, there is plenty to fear in our world. Seventh century Judah had headline stress, I would imagine. Any of these following headlines could have been above the fold of their paper. Syrian-Israel conspiracy revealed. Egypt on the prowl, when will Pharaoh pounce? Assyrian empire flexes military muscle. King Ahaz celebrates sacrificing son to Molech. Government scores high on corruption. Latest poll finds no compassion for widows and orphans. Let them eat manna. The Lord supplied Isaiah with a simple solve for stressful times. He said, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We are likewise told to be unaffected in our walk with the Lord, Jesus promised, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, because he had overcome the world. I'm going to organize my comments around two points. Number one, the Lord is your sanctuary, or number two, the Lord is your stone of stumbling. The Lord's our sanctuary in verses 1 through 14. Here are two competing recent U.S. headlines. Sanctuary city policies are a threat to decent people. Living in fear, understanding the importance of sanctuary cities. While we are stressing about sanctuary cities, the Lord says he will be as a sanctuary for us. 
Herbert Lockyer writes, How good of God it is to promise himself as a sanctuary. In the Old Testament, he provided a temple for his people. In the New Testament, he has a redeemed people as his temple. But the wonder of wonders is that he also is our temple. How consoling it is to know that amid the turmoil of the street, busy cares of the home, hurry and confusion of modern life, we have a sanctuary. Our God is a strong, unassailable sanctuary, doubles as a mighty fortress. As sanctuary, we partake of his promises and his power. We are in Christ and in God. And as our fortress, we have quite an arsenal of spiritual weaponry at our disposal. We can be spiritually safe, sound, and secure, no matter the turmoil or the trouble in the world. And so let's get into it in verse 1. Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Mahir Shalal Hazbaz. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahir Shalal Hazbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. Uh, obviously, Damascus stands for the nation of Syria because it was the capital, and Samaria is the nation of Israel to the north because it was their capital. And so they're used interchangeably here. Now, the name of this unborn son breaks down like this. Mahir means he is quick. Shalal, plunder, loot, or spoil. Hosh, he hurries, or swift. Baz, prey, as in hunting. Quick to the plunder, swift to the prey. It was meant to serve as a warning of the future invasion of Assyria, which would result in the plundering and spoiling of the northern kingdom of Israel. Our spiritual adversary, the devil, is swift to the prey. He's likened to a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Do you know how to survive a lion attack? I mean in Africa. Very simple. Three simple steps to survive a lion attack. Number one, don't panic. Number two, don't run. Number three, stand your ground. Simple, right? <laughs> Why didn't they know this in the ghost in the darkness? Yeah, don't panic. That, that's, that's really going to be easy, right? The lions in their cages at the zoo scare me with their, you know, their uh, uh, roar. Uh, but that, that's what they recommend. So you might want to get on safari. Actually, that is our strategy against the devil. We're to resist him and stand our ground. And as fierce a foe as he is, the Bible says if we resist him, he will flee from us. So let's say you've successfully resisted the devil and he has fled from you. His next strategy is to plunder your life. The terrible thing about this is that he enlists your help to do it. You let down your guard just a little bit, or you quit being vigilant, or spiritually you, you take a step backwards, and before you know it, your life has been plundered. You're at a place that doesn't make any sense for a, a Christian. Something's been stolen and robbed from you, and you have to come back to the Lord. The Jews in Judah would watch as their fellow Jews in the north were plundered and devoured. It ought to have served as an object lesson for them, they saw what happened, but they continued to sin as if it was impossible to happen to them. 
You know, a lot of Christians, uh, it makes the news more when a Christian falls into sin than when a bunch of Christians get saved, right? And especially if it's a pastor or especially if it's a megachurch pastor or something like that. But the truth is, you know, Christians fall. Uh, and, and it's because we're not on guard. Uh, you know, we, we're resisting the devil, he's fleeing, but we, we let our guard down in these other areas. And so um, we need to understand that what happens to them, if some solid Christian, you know, could fall, then so can I, so can you. Uh, and, and so let's be, a little, let's be more vigilant, let's be sober-minded, especially as we see the day approaching, keeping ourselves ready. Isaiah named his son as a prophetic sign to the people of Israel. No one would choose that name unless commanded by the Lord. It was also written on a placard and displayed for all to see. They took out a billboard along, you know, the main highway there. It was written with a man's pen. That means meaning in big, clear, common letters. The placard was witnessed by two respected men, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, so that no one could deny that his birth was prophesied prior to the events predicted. That's a famous criticism that uh, non-believers have of the Bible, uh, books like Isaiah and especially Daniel. Uh, When you say, look, Daniel had all these prophecies, they say, well, of course he did, because it was written after they came to pass. And so that's their, because they decided that there, there can't be any prophecies because there is no supernatural. So if Isaiah prophesied something, he must have known it was already going to happen. In fact, maybe Isaiah didn't even write it, is what they end up saying. Uh, And so here, God goes to great lengths to say, hey, two godly men are going to witness what I'm telling Isaiah, and they're going to write it down, and it's going to be displayed publicly so that when it happens, everybody knows that it was a prophecy. Isaiah's wife is called a prophetess. A handful of ladies were called that in the Old Testament, Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, and Mrs. Isaiah. Between the Testaments, we see Anna hanging out in the temple called a prophetess. And in the book of Acts, Philip had four daughters who prophesied. At Calvary Hanford, we believe the church was founded by apostles and prophets. Ephesians 2.20 says that. These were offices in the church, not gifts. There are no more apostles, if for no other reason than no one can meet the Bible, uh, the Bible, the Bible's qualifications. In the book of Acts, the office of an apostle would only be held by a man who had firsthand knowledge of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. They are all dead. And and so there are no more uh, apostles. That office in the church has ceased. There are no prophets holding an office in the church either. The apostle Paul wrote about a mystery, he said, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And so the apostles and prophets made this mystery known, and then after it was known to the church, that ministry wasn't needed anymore, and so uh, other faithful men took the place of apostles and prophets. They laid the foundation. Other men like pastors, teachers, and evangelists come along, and they build on that forever foundation, right? And so all we're saying is that if somebody tells you they're an apostle, they might have their own meaning for that. They're not like the Apostle Paul. They're not like Peter. They're like, like all the men named apostles in the first century. That was an office in the church. And nobody is a prophet. Somebody might have a gift of prophecy. They might be able to speak forth 
the word of God, not adding to the word or taking away from it, but there's no office of prophet where if somebody says something, it's like, well, that's obviously we have to follow that. We are nevertheless continuous, not cessationists when it comes to exercising the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Men and women in the church may have the gift of prophecy or any of the gifts described in the Bible. And so don't confuse offices with gifts and we'll be okay. Regarding the ladies, I was going to mention this. It's not our topic this morning, so I'll just throw this out there, though, since we're talking about you. What is called the role of women, we are complementarian, not egalitarian. And so you can look those up later uh, and um, figure out what all that means. From the moment Mahar Shalal Habas was born, Damascus and Samaria were on a doomsday clock. Before he was old enough to say mama or not the mama, the king of Assyria would pray and plunder. Obviously no TV watchers here. I'm going to scratch all the rest of my television references, so. Verse 5, the Lord also spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in reason and Remaliah's son, now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria in all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. Every Jew would instantly comprehend this imagery. Shiloh, called Siloam in the New Testament, was the gently flowing water supply of Jerusalem. The river, in verse 7, is the mighty Euphrates River associated with Assyria and its capital. Reason was the last of the kings of Syria who reigned in Damascus. The son of Remaliah, Pekah, reigned 20 years over Israel in Samaria. Because Pukah chose to ally with Syria and not depend upon the Lord, they would not be protected to live the idyllic life by the stream God promised them. They would instead be thrown into the geopolitical mess that is human history and be carried away by the raging flood of the Assyrian Empire. Their help would come from the Lord or from nowhere. They would not be helped once they turned their back on the Lord. Verse 8, he will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the net, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Judah, meanwhile, formed an alliance with Assyria. That's always a bad idea, because later the Assyrians would attempt to engulf them as well. The stretching out of his wings is a change of metaphor from flood to a bird of prey, overshadowing the land. There were some Assyrian gods that had an eagle head. The waters did not cover the head and drown Judah. The bird of prey does not kill, circles, but does not kill. Assyria would, in fact, threaten Judah, but God would intervene. As Captain Picard said of the Borg, thus far and no further. It wouldn't be the Assyrians who conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. It would be the next world ruling empire, the Babylonians. And so... Uh, Isaiah is writing at a time to Judah saying, hey, it's too late for your brothers to the north. You're going to watch them engulfed, drowned, taken away as prey, but you can still repent. And the, the, the Assyrian king is not going to overwhelm you. But if you don't repent, judgment is coming nonetheless. Despite the worsening situation, there was hope. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus. The promise of the coming of the God-man would be realized 
The world will be rescued and restored. Mankind will be redeemed and regenerated. And so though terrible dark times were coming upon Israel and Judah, uh, God's promises cannot fail to his people. And uh, the the God-man would come through their line, born of a virgin as we saw last time, uh, and uh, God's plan will be fulfilled. Verse 9, be shattered, O you peoples. Be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourself, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak to the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Former Secretary of State General James Mad Dog Mattis had no problem expressing his confidence in the U.S. military. There were a lot of quotes that circulated that um, were very, very uh, straightforward. My favorite, he said, we've backed off in good faith to try and give you a chance to straighten your problems out, but I'm going to beg with you for a minute. I'm going to plead with you, do not cross us, because if you do, the survivors will write about what we do here for the next 10,000 years. Okay, maybe we shouldn't fight (laughs) if we're coming against a guy like that. And that's essentially the gist of verses 9 and 10. It's going to be horrible when God pulls the trigger on his judgment. Verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The conspiracy was the alliance Israel made with Syria conspiring against Judah. It seemed insurmountable. Isaiah was instructed to not be stressed at that headline. So if you're, if you're Judah, you're a tiny country already, Israel's bigger than you, and then they align with Syria, I mean, this is a, a cause for, for a real problem. But Isaiah said, don't stress at that headline. Have you ever told someone or been told that an animal can sense your fear, right? Pam tells me that all the time, and that's because I'm afraid of all animals. That African lion we talked about earlier, It can sense your fear. So, hey, just don't be afraid. (laughs) As I said, I'm afraid of all animals to some extent. I've not yet found my don't be afraid of animals switch where I can just say, oh, okay, this rabid dog, (laughs) what's the problem? I just, animals, even uh, insects, of course, we have a natural fear of insects, but They're just animals, they do weird things. They bite you, they claw you, next thing you know, you're dead. So, uh, scary. In the Lord, totally different. What he tells me to do, I can do, if I believe him and choose to. God flat out commands us, don't be afraid, don't be troubled. He doesn't say, Gene, they can sense your fear. (laughs) He says, hey, Gene, you don't need to be troubled. All this terrible stuff, these conspiracies, okay, that's fine, but you don't need to be troubled because I am your sanctuary. And we're going to get through this in a way that honors me, brings glory to me, and is good for you. Verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. The Lord of hosts, or the Lord of the heavenly armies, when I was a kid, and maybe this is still true, if somebody challenged you or threatened you in some way, you'd ask, you and what army? You remember that? Anybody ever say that? I'm going to get you. You and what army? Yeah, you know. That's like saying, 
<laughs> well, no, I'll get that wrong if I say Forget that. So anyway. <laughs> I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever uh, you say bounces off me and sticks to you. Remember that one? Yeah. Not only the headlines, but anything and everything that threatens you or troubles you or stresses you, you in what army is no match for the Lord of the heavenly armies, right? That doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. It doesn't mean we're not going to have hard times. It means that we need to adjust our thinking and understand that we can't be defeated. What can come against us? Nothing, really. Him you shall hallow. Consider God's holiness. That's what that means. Isaiah had earlier in this book been granted a rare glimpse of heaven. He was immediately undone by its holiness and his sinfulness. You and I have not been to heaven like Isaiah, but there was a moment in my life when I was shown by the Holy Spirit the holiness of God and the sinfulness of my soul. A couple of days before I prayed to receive Christ, I don't want to go into the whole thing for you, but I, I mean, it was just a, it was a situation that God had put in front of me where, all, I mean, all of a sudden, um, I, I realized that I was going to go to hell if I didn't trust Jesus Christ as my Savior, and it put me in an absolute funk for several days. The first thing I did was go home to my parents' house. Uh, I stopped by, and they were wondering why I did, and because I wanted to go down the hall where they kept the family Bible. We had one of those 100-pound Catholic Bibles, you know? You've seen they've got pictures of all the apostles in the back and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's huge, you know? And the reason I wanted to see it is I, I wanted to see if there was a book of Revelation in it because I'd seen a movie that had to, to do with the book of Revelation. And uh, at first I couldn't find it, but then there it was. And I thought, oh my goodness, maybe, maybe there's some truth to all of this. And, uh, but the key was, no, I mean, I, just absolutely knowing that you're going to go to hell and that you deserve to be there because God is so holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. I've always had a hard time describing the fear of God the safe default commentary is always to say that it is to revere God, to reverence him. But that often leads to a rebuke because we're too casual with God. And there's a lot of people out there who are like, hey, we need to get back to, you know, he's the creator and we're the creature and we need to, you know, not be so casual. I'm sorry, but a Christian is a son or a daughter of God. Jesus calls us friends. And I don't want to back away from that uh, intimacy. I can't help but think about John John. Those of you who are old enough to know, he was the adorable son of President Kennedy. Remember? John John, little John John. There's a wonderful picture of JFK seated at his desk in the Oval Office. Little John John is playing underneath it, underneath the desk. The president in the seat of all power, his son without a care at all about nuclear annihilation from Cuba. Uh, it's a great picture of our relationship with the Lord. Uh, and that's, that's, that's the relationship he wants for us. So any talk about the fear of God must take that relationship into account. That doesn't you know, tell you everything you need to know about the fear of God, but it can't be left out. One aspect of the fear of God is that he knows if I truly want to be with him or if my heart is divided. You ever get caught looking at your watch when you're talking to someone? That's why I don't wear a watch anymore because I have an obsession with looking at my watch. And it didn't do me any good when I was trying to disciple people, you know, who come in with marriage trouble, and I'm like, <laughs> wonder if five minutes has gone by, I wonder what, happened, what time it is. And I had more than one person say something to me like, uh, you know, am I boring you, or, 
do you have some place to be? And then I take off my watch, embarrassed, and you know, and then I'd have to rebuke them. But anyway, no, but but that's the idea. I mean, God knows if you want to be with Him or not. Your wife knows, your husband knows, uh, in that kind of a relationship. You know, are you distracted? Uh, you know, do do you want to be with me or not? Dread is even tougher to grasp. We can turn to C.S. Lewis for an example. Susan is talking with Mr. Beaver. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he ain't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Captures that sense of dread. Safe? No, no, God's not safe. He's the king. And we are his subjects. Fearing our holy God, we will fear nothing else. If we don't fear him, we need to fear everything else. A few nights ago, I was cable news headline stressing. The host described the deepening alliance between Russia and China. It will be a disaster for the U.S., a total game changer, maybe even game over for us. You know, God says, don't say a conspiracy. Our nation must ally with him. Then he will be our sanctuary. That's the answer. And so this is, this is right out of today's news. It's like, oh, China, did, did you hear that Russia and China are getting together? That's it, we're done. Red dawn, uh, you know, that kind of thing. God says, don't worry about any of that. Impractical, you say, we need more alliances, more armaments, more of everything that makes us powerful. Maybe, I don't want to get into a political statement, but I would submit modern Israel Tiny nation, right? Is it smaller than Rhode Island or something like that, right? They've won all of their wars against overwhelming odds. And everybody in the world, that's an exaggeration, but pretty much everybody in the world knows why. Because God is divinely protecting them. Even in their unbelief, they cannot be defeated because God is on their side. And you know what? We can be defeated if God is not on our side. And he will be on our side when we are on his side, right? He doesn't choose sides. Remember, outside of Jericho, Joshua was praying over Jericho, and he saw this being, turned out to be a theophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And he said, are you for us or against us? And he said, no. Not yes or just no. I'm I'm not for you or against you. I'm the Lord. I'm the commander. You are under my command. And so that's the idea. That's what we need to return to. And when you start to think, man, if I say that, people are going to think, well, you know, just throw Israel out there and say, hey, they, they cannot be defeated. They've tried and tried and tried, and they, they, they still exist. And, and they don't even believe the Lord right now. They're not Christians, right? They haven't turned to Christ. And so uh, that's what we need. That's the kind of relationship we need. The Lord is your stone of stumbling. Foot drop is a general term, a term rather for difficulty to lifting the front part of the foot. Can't always tell if you're doing it, but if you come to uneven ground, you know you're doing it because you end up on the ground. Instead of enjoying a walk with the Lord, both Israel and Judah were dragging their feet and they were headed for a disastrous fall. Verse 14, he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of uh, Jerusalem, uh, Israel, and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. God is often represented in the Bible as a rock, the place of safety to those who trust in him. 
That same rock is a stumbling stone against which unbelievers fall and are broken. The trap and snare were a good description of what trusting an alliance with Syria was really going to be like. Sure, they were allied with you, but only so they could trap you. Jesus is a superior rock and refuge to anything in the world. As we repeatedly proclaim with great joy, God sent the Holy Spirit to live in you. He empowers you to overcome and he enables you to obey. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, verse 16, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Here I am and the children whom the Lord has given me We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Isaiah had disciples. Bind up and seal refers to teaching them, especially uh, teaching them to know the times in which they lived. Isaiah uses the words that cause us so much agitation. I will wait on the Lord. Oh, man, when you get there, you're just, please, Lord, please. Can't this just be over with? Can't we get to the end? I will wait on the Lord. He would wait in hope uh, because of uh, some of the names that the Lord had given him for his kids. Mahir Shalal Hashbaz described the coming judgments. But we met another son of Isaiah earlier in the book, Sher Yasub. His name means a remnant shall return. Then there was a kid born to someone else who was named Emmanuel, God with us. These were signs and wonders from the God of Israel After their national discipline, a remnant would return and the Jews would bring forth Emmanuel, the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world, Jesus. Verse 19, and when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, like the King James Bible says they peep. I don't know why I like that. Peep, peep. What's the wizard doing? He's peeping. (laughs) Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? These were customs that the Jews adopted from their pagan alliances. The wizards and mediums often genuinely contacted evil, malevolent creatures. Why seek them, deceivers, liars, far less powerful than the Lord? So much modern muttering involves contacting your dead relatives, right? There's always some new psychic that is going to talk to Uncle Joe. Read the story of the rich man and Lazarus in the Gospel of Luke. The dead in their sins realized Jesus was their only salvation, but it's too late for them. What about their loved ones? They have God's word, more powerful than a testimony from beyond the grave. Those who claim to speak for the dead always give a false hope that you will be reunited with them. They aren't evangelists like the rich man wished he could be. He wished he could go back and tell people about Jesus, but it was too late. And so just stay away from all of that, horoscopes. Uh, Forget what your sign is. Your sign is the cross, right? You're not a Gemini or a Cancer or whatever. You're, you're, You're a Christian. Verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Measure everything by the word of God. Take, uh, don't take anything for granted, uh, Whatever you're taught here or anywhere, uh, run it through the Bible and make sure that it makes sense. Verse 21 and 2, they will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. 
and they will look to the earth and see trouble in the darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Lots of sci-fi stories give you a look at the horrific future landscape. That's what we're getting in verses 20 and 21, a horrific future landscape for uh, Israel and Judah. Why bother warning if the judgment was certain? National judgment does not eliminate individuals from being saved. When God judged his people, uh, there was always a remnant. When God judges any nation, uh, there can be a remnant of believers. And so just because your nation is judged and will be defeated doesn't mean that they're individuals and it cannot become Christians. Is it too late for the United States? No one can answer that. If it is, individuals can still be saved. So I, I don't know. No one knows what exactly. I mean, you can read the signs of things that are going on. And we talk about Romans chapter one a lot and how it looks like we're in that, you know, sucking spiral and it's almost over. But no one can say for sure. But along the way, people can still get saved, right? That, that's the thing. National judgment doesn't mean evangelism fails. If you're a believer, tell folks what's coming upon the world. Let them see you waiting patiently for Jesus to return. Let them know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said that when he was lifted up on the cross, he would draw all men to himself. And he is indeed the savior of all men, especially those who believe. And so uh, engage with people about the future. Uh, if, if, you've, if you are in fear, I mean, you know, uh, then quit being afraid. That's what the Lord says. Just like that? Yeah, just like that. Because he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And so quit being afraid and let people know that you're just waiting for the Lord. If you're not saved and you remain that way, you're going to one day wake up to a horrific headline, millions and millions missing. Because the Lord is coming to take his church home. It's an imminent event before the great tribulation starts. He promised to bring us to heaven, and he's going to do it. Don't be left behind. Jesus came for you. He died for you. He rose from the dead. He offers you the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But you have to see the holiness of God and the sinfulness of your own heart.